Hello, it's JT Wheatley back for another episode of the History Comics Podcast, where we will be doing part two in the concluding chapter of the life of Carmine Infantino. When we last left off, Carmine Infantino had just ascended as one of the top artists of DC Comics, but he was about to step into the big chair and actually run the company. First, he, had the, he was first made cover editor at DC in the late 1966-1967, tasked with designing all the covers to their comics by Irvin Donenfeld so to better appeal to readers, something Infantino was a master at. He was so good that it attracted the attention of Stan Lee at Marvel Comics, who offered a position at the company for $22,000 a year. When Jack Leibowitz learned about this, he told Infantino he couldn't match the offer money-wise, but instead promoted him to art director at DC Comics. While uh, he was reluctant at first, Infantino saw the opportunity as a challenge and thus took it. It would be quite challenging as cover editor as he was essentially designing 30 to 40 covers a month. Little did he know it would be the stepping stone to even greater things. When DC was sold to Kenny National Company, Conrad Infantino was made editorial director and he found out about it in an interesting way. According to him, Erwin Donenfeld had, had the instant problem with Kenny when he found out that he would, not be, he would just be on the junior board of directors over just being the board of directors of the company. This was apparently a move to force Donenfeld out, which he did by promptly quitting. After hearing about this, Infantino went to Jack Leibowitz to ask who was in charge of DC Comics now, which Leibowitz answered, you are. Infantino was Leibowitz's choice due to his experience as an artist, believing that DC needed a fresh look as they were losing to the rival Marvel comics. He would never tell Infantino directly, as Leibowitz was infamous for never giving anyone a compliment. Having learned the art of negotiation from Jack Leibowitz, Infantino was able to cut profitable licensing deals, though he would receive strange interference from Warner Brothers, DC's parent company, such as having to turn down a licensing deal with the producers of Rocky for the rights of Plastic Man. According to Infantino, the WB execs believed the Plastic Man film would compete with Doc Savage, which Infantino didn't understand since Warner Brothers didn't Warner Brothers own Plastic Man and not Doc Savage, along with being two entirely different characters. He started he did start hiring new talent along with promoting veteran artists to editorial positions like Joe Orlando, Joe Kubert, and Mike Sikowski. Notable hires were Dick Giorgiano, who he brought over from Charlton Comics, which resulted in much of Charlton's writing staff as well, such as Steve Skeets, Pat Boyette, Gemma Paro, and Denny O'Neill. Most famous of all these hires on Infantino, though, was Jack Kirby in 1970 when he left Marvel Comics. When Jack Kirby was brought on board in 1970, it was considered a huge coup for DC, who first put him on the Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. According to legend, Kirby told the DC brass to give him their worst-selling book, and he would make it their best-selling book. However, Infantino would have Al Pastino and later Murphy Anderson redraw Kirby's faces on Superman because he believed they owed it to their license holders to keep his look consistent. Plus, it soon became apparent that getting Jack Kirby wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Infantino would praise Kirby's art and ideas, calling one of the best Idea Man comic books, but was horrible at dialogue, stating Kirby needed a writer like Lee or Joe Simon to help craft his books. As one DC editor stated, I would love to see Kirby's New Gods translated into English. Infantino would later suggest he would do books like Commandy and The Demon. He also tried to get uh, Kirby and Joe Simon to reunite on The Sandman, but Kirby objected, saying he only wanted to work by himself from now on. Despite that, Simon and Kirby did reunite for at least a one-shot before Mike, Michael Fleischer took over writing the series, with Sandman now being Garrett Sanford, who had become more of a superhero-like in appearance with a cape and a mask as he fought to project the children from nightmares. However, it will be sh- as short-lived as Kirby would return to Marvel when his DC co- contract expired in 1975, though during his run, 
he did create uh, some of some of DC's most iconic characters, from Mister Miracle to Dark Side, probably DC's most iconic villain today. Some new talents Infantino will hire was Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, who became his go-to writer and artist in revamping many of DC's core characters, from Wonder Woman to Superman to Batman. However, Infantino was forced to send Robert Kanaier home due to his emotional breakdown affecting his writing, leading to Joe Kubert to take his place as editor, and ultimately. Ultimately, uh, Conair would return, but he would have to be the writer under Joe Kubert, who was now his editor. Infantino would even take credit for Wonder Woman's new direction, despite Nitty O'Neill's claims, stating that he worked with O'Neill and Mike Sikowski to plot the series when Conair was taken off of it. In 1971, Carmine Infantino was made publisher of DC to help counter the, their waning sales. One plan he had was to raise the cover price of their comics from 15 to 25 cents, but also increasing the page count with backup features and story reprints. Infantino even had a Marvel agree to the same price increase around the same time, but the instant Mar- DC did it, Marvel turned around and dropped their cover prices to $0.20, cents, leaving the Marvel to beat DC in overall sales for the first time. Infantino did have a problem with their distributor, distributor Independent News, because they also distributed Marvel Comics, and he claimed that they would actually push Marvel over DC, which was part of their own company, and even tried to get the independent to drop Marvel altogether. It was an irony that National Publications DC actually saved Marvel years ago by providing a distribution network through their independent news, and when Marvel now revived, they were actually making money off their rivals' books, especially when they sold more. Marvel eventually left using uh, independent news when it was bought by Perfect Film, which came with its own distribution network in 1968, thus no longer needing them. Infantino would work with the direct market, such as uh, Phil Schuling, despite the distributor's objections, but he would later object to the comics industry abandoning the newsstands altogether, claiming you should sell comic books in as many avenues as possible. Granted, Infantino's other problems with Marvel also came to the forefront when Stan Lee, Marvel's editor-in-chief, decided to publish an anti-drug abuse story in Amazing Spider-Man number 96-98, made to July of 1971, which he did in coordination with the U.S. Department of Health. However, because the story didn't meet the guidelines depiction of drug use according to the Comics Code Authority, it would not receive its seal of approval. Lee felt the story was important and published the comic anyway without the CCA seal. Initially, the CCA ad John Goldwater, the president of Archie Comics, attacked this move, and Carmen Infantino added to that DC, of course, would like to do an anti-drug issue, but only with code approval, as the, he had did previously with the mentioned Dead Man story. However, the Amazing Spider-Man story soon got universal acclaim in the mainstream press and public, praising not only the anti-drug story, but also defying the CCA in doing so. Ultimately, Infantino and DC in general once again looked behind the times against the always cutting-edge Marvel, and the CCA even had to adjust their code to allow such stories in the future. True to his word, Infantino allowed an anti-drug story in Green Lantern when it was revealed that Speedy, Green Arrow's sidekick, was a drug addict, drug addict now under the new code approval. It was Carmine Infantino's idea to acquire the rights to Foss's Captain Marvel for DC Comics in, on June 6, 1972 and publish a new series, originally paying a licensing fee before buying the, the character outright. An IRA considering that DC originally sued Foss's never published Captain Marvel again in 1953. When DC Comics got the license for Captain Marvel, they ran into a snag as Marvel had created their own superhero named Captain Marvel in 1967, realizing the trademark for the name had expired and thus was up for grabs. 
DC's new comic had to be published as Shazam number one in February of 1973. Though the company and Infantino originally tried to have the subtitle "The Original Captain Marvel" run on the cover as well. However, Marvel even threatened to sue DC over this, and it was removed. Today, most everyone identified the original Captain Marvel solely as Shazam now, as evidenced by the recent 2019 live-action picture. However, this revived comic was not as successful as he hoped, and Infantino claimed that Julie Swartz didn't convey the humor of the original books. He even said he should have put C.C. Beck on the series, but didn't, something that upset Beck greatly. Nevertheless, Shazam and the rest of the Marvel family would soon be fully incorporated into the DC Universe, where they remain to this day. Things did clear up a bit for Infantino when longtime Superman editor Mort Weisinger retired, as this time Infantino let him do it. Reportedly, Weisinger was infamous for threatening to retire and Erwin Darwinfeld would hand over more power to him to stay. However, when he did it to Infantino, Infantino called his bluff and let him go ahead and do it. Sure enough, a few weeks later, Weisinger tried to come back, but Infantino wouldn't let him, to the celebration of many of DC still working there, as his behavior was reportedly abusive. Infantino felt this was good overall, as Weisinger had made Superman too powerful and thus unrelatable to readers, while Infantino preferred the original Jerry Siegel John Schuster creation, who didn't fly as much and was more vigilante. For Superman Comics, Carmine Infantino deliberately gave Action Comics and Superman different editors, with uh, Murin Boltanoff on Action and Julie Swartz on Superman, stating he wanted a different feel for each book. However, many changes to the Superman books were reverted, such as making Clark Kent a TV reporter due to the 1978 movie. Infantino would even help on the movie, consulting with screenwriter Mario Puzo for the stories for Superman 1 and 2. Carmine Infantino did try to revive DC's floundering romance line by firing Dorothy Woolfolk, the current editor, whom he called a disaster, and replaced her with Joe Simon, who practically invented the genre decades earlier with Jack Kirby. However, this line still failed, and Infantino stated if Simon couldn't, who invented the romance comics, couldn't save them, who could? And thus, the romance genre in general died at DC. While still publisher, Infantino did find time to lay out covers and occasionally draw, such as co-creating the human target in a story with Lynn Wein in Action Comics number 419. The character, Christopher Chance, was an operative who protected clients by disguising himself as them so as to lure out their supposed assassin. The character has been a mainstay ever since and has even made two live-action TV shows about him. Most recently, Christopher Chance has made the occasional appearance in the CW Arrowverse on Arrow. However, Infantino later discovered that when he started helping on books with plots and dialogue, he loved writing most of all, especially when he worked with editor Joe Orlando. Sadly, all of this would soon come to an end. On January of 1976, Carmine Infantino was fired as president and publisher of DC Comics by Warner Communications, the, n- the new owners of the company, replacing him with Jeanette Kahn. While disappointed, Infantino re- decided to return to freelance artwork. He first went to work for Warren Publishing and later Marvel Comics. However, he would not try to re- reconnect with his old friends that he was personally hurt by after losing his uh, DC job. At Marvel, he drew Spider-Woman, which he greatly enjoyed, Star Wars, reportedly at the request of George Lucas himself, who was a fan of Infantino, and Ghost Rider. Infantino would especially love his run on Star Wars, greatly admiring the movies, along with the stories and characters, calling it some of the best stuff he did at Marvel. During his run, the comics were one of the top selling in the industry. He also noted that Archie Goodwin's scripted was extremely detailed, complete with stick figures and full dialogue. Infantino also joked that he enjoyed his run on Daredevil as well, since being the co-creator of the Barry Allen The Flash, he had a thing for solid red outfits. 
During his run, he worked with Jim Shooter, co-creating the Paladin and Daredevil on number 150 on January 1978. Infantino had great respect for Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, stating that he knew his job. However, one thing that Infantino did not want to go back to was management, as he even turned down a position as assistant producer at the Hanna-Barbera, stating he was now done with that. Carmen Infantino would later work at Archie Comics in the 1980s and would then return to DC when his old colleague Joe Orlando called asking if he'd like to work on any special projects. Infantino said yes as long as the money was good, and apparently the money was very good as he returned to DC where he helped uh, revive the uh, Dial H for Heroes series with writer Marv Wolfman, which appeared as a special insert in Legion of Superheroes number 272 in February of 1981. He also worked in The Flash, returning on issue number 296, April of 1981, at the request of his old friend Dick Diorgiano, where Infantino gave him a stockier build and Supergirl. According to Infantino, Giordano hated The Flash and wanted to kill him off, which tied in perfectly with the Crisis of Infinite Earths. Naturally being his co-creator, Infantino was not a fan when it happened, but he continued to draw the series up to the cancellation of issue number 350 in October of 1985. He also worked on the Detective Comics number 500 in a story by writer Carrie Bates where Bruce Wayne dies and meets his parents. Eventually, Infantino lost interest in working at DC and stopped taking assignments, including some work on Batman. He would try his hand at a Batman newspaper strip again for a couple of years, but called it off after saying it was boring to work on. During the 1990s, Carmine Infantino taught at the School of Visual Arts and would regularly attend conventions until the early 21st century. In 1993, he worked with Lynn Wein again on the miniseries Danger Trail and later worked on Secret Origins and Legion of Superheroes for DC. But later after that, he would mostly just do commissions. As the comic book uh, genre became more popular, it was not surprising they started to be adapted more and more into the other mediums such as television. One such notable adaptation was the CBS live-action The Flash series in 1990. However, Carmen Infantino hated the show, calling it a Batman clone. He later criticized comic books in general for their sex and violence, consistent with his long-standing views. In 2004, Carmine Infantino sued DC Comics for the rights to many of the characters he created while working, f- while working for them, notably the numerous Flash villains like Captain Cold and Mirror Master, as well as superheroes like Elongated Man and Batgirl. The case would be dismissed that September, ironically the same time of one of his last works for the company, DC Comics Presents Batman No. 1, appeared. Carmine Infantino would participate in two books on his life, The Amazing World of Carmine Infantino and Carmine Infantino Penciler, Publisher, and Provocateur, the chief source for these episodes, near the end of his life. Sadly, that came on April 4th, 2013, at his home in Manhattan at the age of 87. It is impossible to sum up the accomplishments that Carmine Infantino did for comics, especially in these short episodes. From his humble origins, he went to being one of the most accomplished artists in the business to the head of one of the largest comic book companies in the world. In addition, he helped create many of the iconic villains and heroes that were still popular today, most significantly with his legendary run in The Flash, which is still the standard for the character. All in all, comic books are better thanks to Infantino being a part of them, and we comic book fans should be forever thankful for that. I would like to thank the chief source for this episode, these episodes, Carmine Infantino, Penciler, Publisher, and Provocateur by Gemma Moss and Eric Nolan Weddington, which features a great interview of the comic book legend along with beautiful reprints of his arts and strips. A must-read for any comic book fan.
gotta talk. Yeah, Thunder Talk. We're going all kinds of sideways with that sweet nerd junk. Woke nerd junk. It's topical. Political. Dare I say radical. We've got all your latest news and reviews. Hot music. And a whole lot of comedy. But it ain't for kids. Definitely mature content. So let's talk. Let's talk Thunder Talk. Thunder Talk is a proud member of the ESO Network. Now it is March 24th, 2022, time for the favorite comp of the week. The Human Target, number six, by Tom King and Greg Smallwood, that sees uh, Christopher Chance and Ice's romance start to evolve as he wants to investigate her good friend Fire, whether she has a connection to who uh, poisoned him. Meanwhile, uh, her ex, uh, Guy Gardner, shows up, drawing her eye, leading to a very climactic event that really sets the series in a brand new direction. This has been far away one of the best uh, DC comic books on the stand, especially since it's a black label. And as described at the event, I don't want to spoil it, but let's just say this shows this is a black label book. It's out of continuity. Thus, all bets are off. Anything can happen. And it, what happens is brilliant and great. And it's a classic murder mystery thing inside a murder mystery. Just, you, have, you have to see what happens. And it's matched perfectly, with the, as with King's writing, with the Greg Smallwood's Chris Crime Noir-ish uh, artwork, which details everything beautiful, perfectly, from Ice, who's never looked more beautiful. She's like a classic uh, uh, detective Crime Noir femme fatale in this series. And, of course, the event itself, when that thing gets detailed, like, whoa, that is brilliant and scary and gorgeous at the same time. And not enough can be said good about this series, The Human Target. And Tom King, I've said repeatedly, when he's spoken on these nice uh, maxi or mini series where he tells a contained story in his own way, he's fantastic. Long-form stories, uh, not as good. The Batman's run, good or bad, was kind of up and down. But this stuff is, is this. The Human Target is, is his finest, and The Human Target number six is easily the best uh uh, book in this uh, whole series so far and uh, the best comic book of the week in my opinion so with that uh, thank you for listening to the, the concluding part of the life of the great uh, Carmen Infantino join me again next week for another episode of History Comics Podcast and until then go out and enjoy yourself with comic book